Hello everyone, welcome to the Full Cup. We are here, this is our our third episode. Today we're going to be talking about how we get free. How we get all the hands off the streaming room. How we get all the hands off. Yeah, that was a pretty cool thing last week. So, welcome, welcome. If you're here again for the first time, go back and listen to the first episode and listen in order. That is the way to do it. Yeah. All right, go ahead, Craig, Dad. <laughs> okay. Uh, basically, what I learned about 1981 is that uh, my patients kept getting better, and a couple of shrinks that I was working with were saying, how come they're getting better? They're not taking medication. I said, I don't know, and I started listening to them very carefully. And uh, one day, I, I kind of followed all these people, and after about... Uh, nine different people, I went and looked at the charts and I started to see what had happened with all of them. And they, they seemed to have some very close correspondence to each other, yet they'd never talked to each other. Uh, so I listened and I wrote a few things down. And over the next couple of months, I realized, I think they're all saying the same thing. And it was the same thing that I think I had done as I'd overcome some of the difficulties I faced in life. And uh, so I broke it down into four basic steps that people go through uh, to finally emancipate themselves or to get free. And that's what this whole practice is based upon, is getting free and getting emancipated. I think I mentioned last week that if I'm not fully emancipated from my family of origin, I may not know how to fully emancipate from my spouse, my children, uh, my God, uh, or anybody else. So it's all about emancipation. These are the four steps to getting free. The first step is the recognition of the relationship. Uh, when I have patients come in, I have them actually say, I, I, I have the, them try these four steps on and then say, what do you think? And I've yet to see anybody who says, I disagree with it. Now, that's only 43 years of doing it, but maybe uh, someone one day may say, yeah, I disagree with, with uh, what you're saying, but uh, I'd like to claim them as my steps, but my patients taught them to me. First one is recognition of relationship. It might be, you're my wife, you're my ex-husband, you were my mom, you're my stepmom, you were my boss, whatever the case might be. I'm just going to follow one course today, and you can put anybody's name you want to, and that is we'll talk about mom. The first step is you're my mom, and I'm your son. That's the recognition of the relationship. Sometimes people don't want to talk about that. They say, no, she's no longer my mom. I hate her. She hates me. I don't have anything to do with her. That boss has been was 10 years ago. I don't have that boss anymore. It was my husband. He's out of my life. I, I'm not even going to claim he's part of my life. But the reality is if he is or his history with you is affecting you, you might want to do the work and recognize that maybe he was a part of your life at one time. Going back to the mother role. You're my mom. I'm your son. Number two. Number two is that we usually care or love. Down deep, mom, I really do want to love you. Now, a lot of the people I see, they no, no, no. They, they say, I don't love my mom. My mom doesn't love me. Um, she stopped loving me. She's never loved me. She told me she hated my guts. And so I'm not going to love her. And most, a lot of people, because of that, say, no, nope, I'm not going to love her. It hurts too much. But it's been my experience that everyone I've ever met wants to love their mother somewhere inside. It might be the two-year-old who for the last 50 years has not, had nothing to do with his mother because his mother beat him or hurt him really bad. So he says, no, I don't love my mother. 
but I will bet the the child that is in embryo that lives in all of us still wants to love our mother and wants our mother to love us. This becomes an important factor, especially with people who are adopted, because sometimes they feel this separation anxiety from the very beginning and they don't know what it is in the rest of their life. They suffer with issues of abandonment or separation or threats of being hurt or abandoned. So number two is basically, I want to love you and I want you to love me. And I believe that you love me in some way, even in your peculiar, crazy way at times. And I love you. Again, this caring or love, a lot of people say they don't want to deal with that. And I say, then we'll skip it. But when they finally get done, they come back to number two and say, I really do want to love that person. We'll talk about that in a minute. The third step. The third step is the angst, the upset. I call it ouch you're wrong and you hurt me. A lot of people are stuck in number three. My mom did this to me. My dad did this to me. My mom did this and she did this. She abandoned me. She threw me out. She beat me. She abused me. Uh, She wasn't there for me. She programmed me wrong. And all of the other horrible things, whether it's with an ex-husband, you did this, you did that, whether it's with a a brother who abused you physically, emotionally, sexually, but it doesn't matter. All of the number three is the angst, the upset, the crying, the screaming, the ranting and raving. And a lot of people turn that into a full-time job. They've come to see me. They've been in therapy for 12 years, 15 years, and they're still angry. They're still bitter about the hurt and the pain that they've been through as a young child, or maybe even as a 25 year old wife. And now she's 30 or 50. Uh, But Number three is the right to be able to say, ouch, which is I need to grieve, I need to cry, I need to scream, rant, and rave. You were wrong. And being able to be heard that this was wrong, what you did to me, and know it. And a lot of times people say, well, I need to go confront my parent on that and tell them they're wrong. And other therapists have told them, you need to go confront your mother and tell her she was wrong. And I say, well, you can do that. But oftentimes when you do that, it turns into the 20-year debate or 50-year debate, because I've seen children who were told by their therapist, you need to go confront your mother and tell her she was wrong. And the mom says, well, I didn't do that. And my 40-year-old patient says, well, yes, you did. And the mother says, I wouldn't do that. I'm kind. Well, the mother's 70 now. She's kind. She got over the stuff. Mom, you did this. No, I didn't. I wouldn't do that. And the, the patient goes home going, oh, well, maybe she didn't. I thought you did. Oh, wait. Uh, mm -mm. At this juncture, I instruct my patient to recognize mom doesn't get to define her reality. This is hers and hers alone. And she also can't define mom's reality. If you try to do that, you get into that 30-year debate or 50-year debate. Your reality is what happened to you. A lot of times people add to the reality because My abuse, the horror that I went through was maybe even less, but I'm going to crank it up because I, it does something for me. It gets people to feel sorry for me. It gets people to recognize how many people play the role of victim sometimes as their defensive template. Using this DT protects me and it also gets me nurturance and help. Number three is vitally important. You can't skip number three. And oftentimes I have people list the things 
that happened. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Because the list of number three is what you're going to turn to wisdom in number four. Now, after we've dispensed, and sometimes people need to spend weeks, sometimes months, some people have already spent years in number three, being angry, being sad, being messed up over it. Number four comes like this. The fourth step is uh, the, the, probably the most important. It's when we finally decide, I'm not going to let that stuff mess with me anymore. And a lot of people say, well, how do you do that? I don't know how to do that. And I say, everybody's done it, as a matter of fact. They've already done it. Have you ever had anybody on the freeway cut you off and then flip you off and call you a name? How long do you let that mess with you? The rest of your life? Maybe a day, maybe a couple of hours, but eventually you just say, I'm not going to let that jerk mess with me anymore. I'm going to get over it and I'm not going to be bothered by that. Well, that's what you do and you've already done it, but we're going to expand on it. From my perspective, it is sometimes very difficult to get free from things. Also, from my perspective, what my patients taught me is it's not that I'm going to necessarily get free from it. It's that I'm going to turn this horrible black stuff to gold. And when you finally do get free, you have the wisdom that you learn from that difficulty. Earlier I said, we may list the things that hurt me. You did this, you did this, you Mm -hmm. did this, you did this. Well, in number four, you get to say, you know, mom, it was horrible what you did. But to survive you and the pain you put me through, I've had to learn an independence of thought. I'm not going to let your stuff hurt me anymore. I'm going to think for myself. It might be my mother was really cruel to me. And I might want to be cruel to my children at times, but I realize, no, I remember how much that hurt me. If anything, I will be kind to my children. I will do the opposite of what I'm going to take that pain and turn it to wisdom. Grow from that experience that she put me through. If she called me names and swore at me, I know how painful that was. And I can say, You know what? That was really painful. I'm not going to do that to my kids or to my spouse or to my friends or whatever the case might be. I'm going to get free and I get free by turning it to wisdom. You know, Libby, I have a lot of people who come to see me and they've been in therapy for 12 years, 15 years, eight years, off and on. And I'll say to them, so why are you coming to see me? Well, Somebody told me that you might help me finally get this stuff done. I've been in and out. I still haven't cleared up my depression. I say, well, what did you learn from your last therapy? What do you mean? Well, what did you learn from that pain? What, that my dad's a jerk? That my mother was horrible? Well, that. Did you learn to get free from that? Did you learn this independence of thought? Did you learn to become an agent of yourself? Did you learn how to rescue the little girl that your mother so abused? Did you learn that you can take care of you? Did you learn from that that not only can you, but it's up to you to rescue that little girl, that little boy, teach her how to fill her cup, go inside your own brain and rescue her and tell her she's wonderful and special and she doesn't have to listen to what her mother said anymore? Did you do any of that? And they go, what are you talking about? I said, from my perspective, the only way you resolve anything is to turn the pain to wisdom. That to me is what therapy is. Now, there's a couple of other parts to it. In addition to the wisdom you get, once you understand the wisdom and it's true, you can say things like this. 
to your mother or your father. Now, let me back up. I encourage people to never have this conversation with their parents or the ex-husband or whoever the perpetrator was because of the debate. But I believe they have to have the conversation generally in a gestalt, in a, in mm. a we're doing chair technique. Are we going to do a gestalt? Way. Not today. Okay. We'll be doing that in the future. So being able to say, ouch, you hurt me. This was wrong. And grieve it and, and cry and ache and swear and cuss and do all the things to dump out the pain, to have all this catharsis. But from number three, that's the catharsis, dumping it all out. And number four is turning it to wisdom. But once you finally get the wisdom, you're able to do this. And mom, thank you. I'm breaking the cycle that was started with grandma and you. I'm going to change things. I've turned this horrible pain into wisdom. I'm stronger for having gone through this. I've learned this agency, this independence of thought. I'm not going to let your stuff mess with me anymore and actually be grateful for the pain that has taught her to grow so much. Now, I don't introduce this the first session. Most people won't come back. I introduced it in the second session one time, and this lady got mad at me. And she said, you think I'm going to be grateful for my father's sexual abuse towards me? And I said, I do believe you have that potential one day. And she looked at me like I was nuts, got up and walked out. She came back about four years later and said, I got to finish this. And when she was all done, she said, I have insight into sexuality, into the purient interest of men, into all kinds of things that I never would have had had I not gone through the hell that my father put me through. Mm -hmm. It's never saying that wrong is right. Wrong is always, always wrong. But the wisdom that can come from that horrible pain is unstinking believable. The wisdom, the growth that we come from the difficulties that we go through. I've already told you this before. All thine afflictions shall be consecrated for thy gain. I really do believe that. And that's why I'm able to do this all day long. People say, how do you do this all day long? Because I absolutely believe everybody I've ever seen in my office has the potential to turn this horrible hell into wisdom. It may take them months. It may take them years. Sometimes just weeks. And they already start picking up. I can turn this horrific pain into great wisdom. So there's a gratitude for what you've been through. In addition to that, this happens. And mom, I am so sorry that you had to go through what you had to go through. Being as crazy, as awful, as horrible as you were, I am so grateful that you were able to go through it. And I, I already mentioned the gratitude, and I feel so tenderhearted and sorrowful that you had to go through all the craziness that you had to go through to be the person you were. Underneath it, I know that you're still divine and wonderful and special, but that must have been so hard for you to be that mean to protect yourself in doing what you did to me or whatever the case might be. People look at me like I'm crazy. You're telling me that my husband who beat me, one day I'm going to feel sorry for him because he was a, such a sick bastard? I said, yeah, because now who has to carry that? One of the things I learned in child protection is there's two kinds of, of trauma. There's perpetrator trauma and there's victim trauma. Victim trauma is you've done this to me. 
I hate you, you've hurt me. Perpetrator trauma is, I, I, uh, well, you, uh, oh my heck, I did this. I can't believe I've done this. Are you kidding? Have I done this? Oh my goodness. This, I, I can't believe I did this to, to that person. Oh my goodness. Which do you think is the greater trauma to resolve? Victim trauma or perpetrator trauma? I don't know. It's been my experience <laughs> that when you're able to be a victim and say, you son of a blankety blank blank, you did this to right. me. That's a, it's easy to cathartic. Right. But when you have to point the finger and then turn the finger to yourself and say, I did this yeah. horrible thing. Whoa. And a lot of people, because it's so painful and they have already a horrible self-esteem, they cannot look at themselves and examine themselves and therefore recognize what they've done. So they go to their grave, literally blaming everybody else for everything else, because to look at themselves, what they'd have to take full account of what they've done. And that's horribly, horribly painful for most people. And a lot of people who are character disorders don't seem to have any kind of remorse like that. But it's been my experience, sometimes even with character disorders, they can get to that horrible pain. So the last stage, stage four, is freedom. I'm not going to let you mess with me anymore. It's wisdom. And how I'm going to get past this stuff is not to bury it or to dump it, but to turn it to wisdom. I actually have, actually have a gratitude for what I've been able to learn from this. I'm thankful, not for the horror but for the wisdom that I've gotten. And I'm actually sorrowful for what it must have been for you to go through the craziness of being as crazy as you were to hurt me in the way you've hurt me. That to me is how you go through the four steps. Let me go on just a little bit. In turning this, this pain into wisdom, it's one of the most difficult things to do, but it is without question the only way to resolve stuff. It is my belief we can't get resolution on anything until we turn that pain to wisdom. Is this making sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's say now I've created this neural pathway. In our first week, we talked about neural mm -hmm. pathways, right? Of a deer trail. The deer trail, yeah. Of independence of thought. And the byproduct of independence of thought is that I can now love. If I can truly get free from my mom, or my ex-husband, or my wife, or that person who victimized me, could I actually love them again? No way. And yet, if you're truly free, you may find that you are loving them. And it's been my experience that the barometer, the thing that measures our freedom, is our love. Think for a moment if you can get past all of the things that person did to you. Truly get past it them. Turn those things to wisdom. Be stronger for having gone through that. And then loving them. Whether that's good for them, it's good for you. It's good for me. All the research points out now regularly that the key to good mental health is to love. Go Google the health benefits of loving. It tells you all kinds of things. But what we do is we carry things like this and they, they continue to hurt us. Anchors get triggered. But once you've got the wisdom, anytime an anchor gets triggered, you go, boy, I did learn a lot from that, didn't I? Mm -hmm. Now, there's a very, very important part of this process that is my version of the hearts of the fathers turn to the children and the hearts of the children turn to the fathers. Mm-hmm. Let's say now 
that you are absolutely free from your mom and dad. You're actually grateful for some of the mistakes that they've made because it's taught you so much. You love your parents now because you're not going to let them bother you anymore. Let me stop here for a moment. Some people try to love their parents before they get free. Fine, do that. But if I love my mom and I forgive her, that's a big part of number four. And then she does it again, I'm upset again. Right. But if I recognize and learn, oh, that's the way my mother is. My mother does crazy stuff. Now I call, I think I mentioned this in one of the earlier uh, sessions, all pathology to me is purple. Anger, nastiness, abuse, even depression, anxiety, uh, being mean. I just call all of that stuff purple stuff. If I can get free from my mother's purple, I can love her. But if she does it again, do I get free again? I don't have to. Because once I'm free and I understand my mom's purple, I can say, oh, that's just who my mom is. And I can get so free from her that I can love her more than ever, even though she's purple. And when she does her purple stuff, I can giggle and go, I'm not going to let that stuff mess with me. I'm going to love her profoundly because that's my mom. I'm sorry my mom's so purple. But I've learned to protect myself from the purple with the gift of agency, the DT of agency or independence of thought that we talked about in our first session. Mm -hmm. And once I have the DT of freedom, agency, independence of thought, number four down, I'm protected. I don't need these other DTs to protect myself. So to forgive her and then she does it again, then I got to forgive her again, does it again, forgive her, does it again. If I've gotten free from her and said, that's just my mom. That's the way she acts. She's probably going to continue to do that. My dad may continue to act like that. I might not go around him anymore or around her anymore, but I'm not going to let him hurt me anymore. And I'm going to rescue the little boy, if I'm a little boy, or the little girl that they damaged. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But let me tell you this. Going back to the hearts of the fathers turned to the children, hearts of the children turned to the fathers. If I've fully emancipated from my mom and dad, loving them profoundly, turning all the mistakes they made into wisdom, growing from it, being grateful for the wisdom, not the horror, but for the wisdom, actually having sorrow for what their lives must have been like being so crazy, and absolutely forgiving them because I know I can now because I'm not going to let them hurt me again. It's one of the most important processes of our life. It's called the emancipation process that we do when we get free from our parents. Mm -hmm. But one of the most miracles that come with that is this. Libby, I'd like you to turn to your children now and say, when the heck are you guys going to get to stage four with me? When the heck are you guys going to get to stage four with me? If I can do it with my parents. If I can do it with my parents. Get free from them. Get free from them. Love them profoundly. Love them profoundly. Turn all their mistakes to wisdom. Turn all their mistakes to wisdom. I know you can learn to do it with me. I know you can learn to do it with me. It, Libby, it literally sets us free because we now know this is the process that I had to go through. This is the process my children have to go through and this. 
And kids, it ought to be a cakewalk for you. And kids, it ought to be a cakewalk for you. For two reasons. For two reasons. One, I haven't put you through half the crap my parents put me through. Yeah. Amen. No, just kidding. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, for one, I haven't put you through half the crap my parents put me through. And two. And two. You've got a guide. You've got a guide. Me. Me. Watch me, kids. Watch me. But through not, the wire. Not yet, because I'm too controlling. <laughs> You're right. And you're supposed to be controlling when they're young. Put your hands all over yes. their steering wheel. Just don't let them put their hands on yours. But know that somewhere between 18 and death and hopefully between 18 and 25, 30, they're going to get they're yes. gonna look at you and say, Mom, Dad, Danny, Libby, I'm not letting your crap mess with me anymore. Yeah. And the mistakes you made, I've already turned to wisdom. I love you guys profoundly, but I'm still not going to let you mess with my head anymore. And I'm not eating the vegetables anymore unless I choose to. I may choose to eat lots of vegetables, Mom, but it'll be because I choose to, not because I have to. Because I've now learned to fully emancipate. And I can love you profoundly and get free from all of the crap because look at the incredible wisdom it brought to me. Once again, it's my perspective for 40-some-odd years that we can't get past anything until we turn it to wisdom. Yeah. And the wisdom is what we keep, and it, it helps us to grow, and we can actually be grateful for the wisdom. I'm never telling people to be grateful for horror and pain and suffering. But when you're done, you can actually be grateful for what it's taught you. Yeah. Is that making sense? Yeah, that okay. makes sense. So uh, I want to talk a little bit more today, if it's all right, about why it's so difficult to get the hands off the steering wheel. Okay. Okay. Yes. Sorry, I did have a question or just a comment, because I think we do go through stages where we emancipate and we become free and we're we don't have their hands on our steering wheel and we're not eating the vegetables. But then I think it there are times when it slips back in because we're only human, you know? Yes. And it's, it's exactly like a right. lifetime process. Yes. Like, I mean, you're saying, I hope by the time you're 18 to 25 or 30, you've emancipated. And I'm sitting here thinking like... Well, I'm 37, so <laughs> still not quite there. I mean, so, I am so in a I lot can, of areas. I can still you make can you crazy. still make me crazy, <laughs> but but only occasionally. You know what I mean? I feel like sometimes I'm doing better being not letting things bother me or just in like who I am, you know. There's phases of life when you're doing better mentally or spiritually or physically. So Takes us right it's in. just kind of what I was thinking is it's, it's a lifetime process. Hopefully we understand the process, but we're going to be working through that forever. No. Yes and no. Okay. Uh, let me tell you the biggest reason that we, we, we we're feeling independent, we're emancipated, and I feel really good. And then dad says something that hits an old anchor mm -hmm. that you haven't resolved. In the weeks to come, we're going to talk about the 20 minute rule where I let something that your mother did when I was 60 years of age bother me so much I was ready to divorce her. And it had very little to do with her. It had more to do with some anchors that she triggered mm -hmm. inside of me. So it's the anchors that our parents put in us. And who put most of those negative anchors in us? Probably our family. Our parents. Yeah, our yeah. Parents. Mom, dad, those mm -hmm. people. And so the anchors are the big thing that gets triggered. And, and those are the things that set us off, get us upset. But you mentioned something also that I'm just going to, I was just going to lead yeah. into. I call it CED. Okay. Clinical emotional dependency. Ooh. Okay. And we're going to talk about that right now. You mentioned it's a lifelong process. How many years were you taught to eat the vegetables? 
All my life. Even at 37, your dad's still telling you to eat the vegetables. Yes, Uh he is. Okay. And so somewhere along that process, usually about starts about two for some people, uh, really 11 to 19 is where we really get into it, adolescence. And then as we reach our 40s, we really start to get independent and say, no, I, I, I may love them, but I'm not eating the vegetables anymore. So the deer trail are the deepest in what I call clinical emotional dependency. All right. So let me go on with this for just a minute. Let's pretend, well, no, let's not pretend. Let's go back to when I was born. I was born in the 40s, okay? I'm getting old. When I was born, I came out of my mother's womb and I wasn't breathing. So you know what the doctor did? Slapped you on yeah. the butt. Yeah, lifted me by the legs and slapped me on the butt. And it shocked me and I went, <gasps> Who made me cry, Libby? The doctor. Do you hear the deer going down the trail? Mm-hmm. My cry, my shock, <gasps> My first breath is dependent. The doctor swatted me and I sucked in air and screamed. Mm -hmm. Who made me do that? The doctor. There you go. You hear the deer going down the trail. Right. Let's go even before then. I was in my mother's womb. Who was keeping me alive? Your mom. That umbilical cord was filled with blood and oxygen, all kinds of stuff helped me to grow, right? Right. You hear the deer going down the trail neurologically? We now know that after the first trimester, the neurological system is already sending and receiving information. So there's a dependency that gets formed. The deer trail is deeper and deeper with clinical emotional dependency. All right. Well, then after he swatted me, they cleaned me up, pulled all the stuff out of my nose and mouth, latched me to my mother's breast, and I started to feed. And I stopped crying. Who made me stop crying? Mom. Who filled my tummy? Mom. You hear the deer going down the trail? Mm Mm-hmm. Is the trail getting deeper of clinical emotional dependency? Yes. I remember this. I didn't get any better. I was about three years of age. I don't know why I remember this, but I was running across the field and I got into these stupid jack stickers that we have here in Utah. You know, the goat heads. Mm-hmm. Goat heads yeah. And I had, I, I didn't have any shoes on. I was barefooted. I had uh, shorts on, no shirt. And every step I'd take, I'd get another jack sticker. I'd take another step, get another one. I fell down. They burned my knees. Then I put my hand in there, my hand. I didn't dare move. I was frozen. I was hurting. The jack stickers were hurting me. My mother, I remember this, saw me in the kitchen window, ran across the grass, across the street, into the field across the street, gathered me up in her arms, took me over, set me on the grass, and very gently and delicately pulled the thorns of my hands, my elbows, mm-hmm. my knees, my feet, kissed them all better. And within two minutes, I felt better. Right. Who made me sad? Jack stickers. Who made me feel better. Mom. Do you hear the dependency? Yes. I got to be about five years of age, maybe seven. I got in a big fight with my sister. My dad came and said, what the heck's going on in here? I went, oh, I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm scared. Dad's, Dad's mad. Oh. Who frightened me? Dad. But who made my dad angry? You. Whoa, this is a two-way street. I can make him feel things. He can make me feel things. Okay, I'm getting it. Yeah. I went to a family reunion and a strange man looked at me like this with his arms all crossed up and looking frowny and it scared me. I ran to my dad. I was 11. My dad said, what's wrong? I said, well, that that man just scared me. Is he going to hurt me? And my dad looked at him and looked at me and started laughing. He says, that's your weird Uncle Charlie. He's fine. He's not going to hurt you. You're okay. Don't worry about it. Who scared me? Uncle Charlie. Who made me feel better? Dad. Okay. Then I got into junior high. 
Well, Junior High, I'm starting to feel my oats. They say, be home by 9 o'clock. Oh, yeah? I'll come home at 9, but I'm going to stand on the front porch till 9.10. I'll show them. They can't tell me what to do. I'm starting to think independently. Not too much. I'm just shifting my dependence from my family to my friends. Mm -hmm. The kids in junior high, they had a party. (gasps) I didn't get invited. Oh, no. Who made me feel bad? Friends. A couple of weeks later, they had a party. They invited me. Woohoo! Hey, maybe I'm popular. Who made me happy? Friends. Who made me feel better? Friends. Yeah. You hear the deer trail? Yes. Clinical, emotional dependency. I got into the ninth grade. I had a girlfriend. We'd held hands. I walked her home from school. And then one big day, she kissed me. Are you kidding me? I felt things I had never felt before. Wahoo, this is incredible. Woohoo. I was in love. I was turned on. I was excited. Everything was wonderful. Who made me feel those wonderful, joyful feelings? Girl. Yeah. The next day I came to school and she said, well, I don't like you anymore. I like Johnny. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my heart is broken. Who broke my heart? The girl. Well, now I'm embarrassed because I felt sick to my stomach. I ran into the bathroom. And in the bathroom, I had the dry heaves. I was so sad, so broken up. Well, when you have the dry heaves, what happened to your eyes? They get red. And tear. Mm -hmm. I can't go out of the bathroom now. My friends will see me. They'll say, what are you, worst? Oh, she she broke your heart, poor little. They'd tease me. Oh, man, I got to be a man. I can't cry. (laughs) My friends, everything was just falling in on top of me. I was being emotionally dependent. Well, years later, I got married. And my wife, your mom, made love to me. It was the most incredible thing that ever happened. Oh, my goodness, I've died and gone to heaven. Who made me feel all those wonderful feelings of love? Everything. Who made me feel all that? Oh, your wife. (laughs) (laughs) And then one day, I came home and I reached for her and she said, don't touch me, I'm mad at you. Uh And I went, uh? What? And I tried to hold her again. She said, don't touch me. I'm mad at you. Oh, well, who made me feel that I was ugly? Your wife. Who made me feel that, I, that, that maybe I, she, she doesn't like my touch? Your wife. But who made me worried that, that maybe somebody along is going to come along who's kind or sweet or better looking and, and, it's gonna, and she's going to marry them? Who made me feel all those horrible, frightening feelings? Who made me feel Your that wife. bad, wicked woman? Well, today... If a strange man looks at me today like this. He made a really weird face. Okay. (laughs) Am I going to run to my dad? No. No. Do you mean today I might be a little bit more emotionally independent? Yes. If I reach for my wife tonight and she says, not tonight, dear, do I go, oh, geez, I gave like I did when I was 20 or 22? No. I don't. I go, dear, okay, I love you. We'll get together. I don't have to let my wife dictate to me what I'm going to think and feel. Even if she's mad at me, no matter what she does, no matter what people do around me, I can be joyful and happy and create my own joy, my own peace, my own happiness. You can. So I can learn to move from this state of clinical emotional dependency into this state of emotional independence. Yeah. Now. You know, I'm an old beer drinker who found God. I'm crazy about Jesus Christ. According to my religious background, there was a big meeting in heaven. 
one guy came out and said, hey, I'll make them all captive. I'm going to drag them back. They'll make it all. I get the glory. Don't worry. I'll take care of them all. I'll make them all captive, drag them back. I'll be in charge. I'll take care of business. And his brother said, no, 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 no. No, let's, let's, uh, let's give them their, let's do father's plan. Let's give them their agency. And if there's any glory, you know, they got to figure it out on their own. But if there's any glory in this, uh, we give it to father. Who said captivity? Satan. Who said free agency? Jesus. You now understand what my practice is based upon. Dependency. Captivity. Independence. Agency. Agency. And so the only reason I treat people is for one reason. CED. Clinical emotional dependency. Or captivity. They're captive to the lenses of their history. They're captive to old anchors that have been stacked up and are plaguing them. You said, some days I'm really good, and then an anchor gets struck. That's because you're still captive to that anchor that you haven't fully resolved. Mm -hmm. This is what my practice has been based upon for four, over 40 years. And it's all about learning to gain this emotional independence, to move through those four steps and say, it's up to me what I think. It's up to me what I feel. And I'm not going to let that person, that person, or that person dictate to me what I think and feel. I may borrow from them. I may exact feel exactly what they want me to feel as long as I put this in front of it. I choose to feel this way. Yes. If it becomes have to, supposed to, I'm feeling this, I don't want to feel this way. And instead of looking at that person who's made me feel this way, I look inside myself and say, what anchor did they just trigger in me? What set me off in this? What made me nuts? What upset me so much? I need to look inside myself and figure this out and, and resolve this so I don't have to let that person and what they're doing, whether it be my mother, my father, my child, my friend, or anybody else dictate to me what I think and feel, but I can still feel exactly what they want me to feel as long as I put this in front of it. I choose to feel this way. I say, that's a good point. I need to learn to do that. Yeah. But so many of us are so caught up or lacking in our self-esteem we can't take any criticism because criticism hurts us and then we have to go into a dt to protect ourselves we have to get tough or angry or, or frightful or, or whatever we do but if we know that we're wonderful and we're going to be talking at length about self-esteem in the weeks to come when we know that we're special we can even handle criticism mm -hmm. it's called ced clinical emotional dependency and then the four steps step one recognition of the relationship. Step two, love. Step three, ouch, you hurt me, you were wrong. Step four, freedom, independence of thought, agency, wisdom. I learned so much from this. Gratitude for what I've learned from this. Sorrow for the person who went through this or even ourselves. Now I'm going to close this by talking about us personally. Not only do we go through the four steps with people who've hurt us, we have to go through it with ourselves. If it would be me, it would be this. I'm Craig. Craig is me. Down deep, I really do want to love me. And I want the inner me to love me back. But I've done some dumb things. I've hurt me. I've let other people hurt me. I've been wrong. I've been bad. Sometimes I make me so mad I could just spit. I've made all these horrible mistakes. This stuff has messed with me. It's hurt me. Number four, but I recognize now I can let all of that stuff mess with me forever or not. 
It's up to me. I'm a devoutly religious man at this point in my life. I believe in Jesus Christ. So I can say, Father, I'm going to take all of that stuff that I've done and I'm going to give it to my Savior. But before I give him all of that, I will glean from that wisdom. I'm going to turn that. The line is, blessed be the name of God, for through my transgressions, my eyes are opened. Had it not been for my transgressions, I never would have tasted the joy of my redemption. That's number four. I'm going to give it to him. I keep the wisdom. And then I can even say, I'm so sorry that I had to put myself through so much stuff. But I'm also grateful that I was able to walk through that and he was able to walk with me. And I can turn all of those horrible things into incredible wisdom and never do them again. Yet keep the wisdom I got from that. Mm -hmm. It's the four steps. It was just a thought I had when you were talking about clinical emotional dependency. dependency. And you were talking about the steps of life. It's fine. We hear pitter patter above us. You can't hear it in the mic. Um, So you're talking about just you growing up and all these different occurrences happening. And it made me think about my daughter, Olive, who is very anxious and has anxiety and doesn't want to go to school. And as a result, I was just thinking, oh, here's a trial my daughter's had. It's been one of the hardest things. She wakes up. She has a stomach ache. She feels sick. Why do you feel sick? She doesn't know why. She's just worried about something that's going to happen at school that day. And I mean, this would happen every single day of the year. And we would just, you know, talk about it, work through it. Let's see. Okay, what can you do at school today? Can you think of something when you feel like you're going to get sick? Let's think of something you could do nice for someone. Let's think of maybe you could help someone who needed some help. Maybe you could sing your favorite song. Maybe you could, and we're just kind of giving her all these little tools to teach herself to be happy because she's already miserable before she's even there. She's worried about what her teacher's going to say. She's worried about what her friends are going to say. And anyway, I was just thinking like that as a kid, that this could be a good thing for her. Well, I just think it's neat. Like I know so many kids struggle with anxiety right now, but I think it can, if you can learn steps to work through it, it will be a great tool for you as an adult to learn how to have emotional independence. Instead of learning it when, you know, I mean, having all of these things along the way in your life will hopefully help you. When you learn that all of the difficulties are just opportunities for growth. If we could start instilling in our children early that that's why we're here. But all the movies say, oh, no, we're here to have wonderful and drink beer and sit on the beach and everything's going to be wonderful and no problems. No, we're here to have the difficulties and it's the difficulties that teach us. And if we could change that way of thinking. Now, part of the dilemma that we have in our family somewhat, when, when you and the kids go through difficulties, I'm already on the phone. Oh, man, you're going to learn so much. And your mom says, would you give them a minute? You're the one that says they have to grieve at first. Yeah, Let yeah. them a minute. Give them a couple of weeks to grieve it, and then they'll turn it to wisdom. Don't right. start telling them they're going to turn it to wisdom right now. They need to grieve. And I say, you're right. You're right. We need to hurt. We need to say, ouch, number three, this hurts me. But number four, eventually, whether it's in six weeks, six months, or six years, is finally learning to get free. But I do want to say one other thing, and we'll talk about this more in the future, but it's this. We call this ritualistic stories of identity. The stories that you tell your children, our children really look to us 
And when you tell stories about your experience, you tell stories about, oh, this is so horrible. And I worried about this. Oh, the threats me. This is God. You're on the phone talking to your girlfriend. This day is making me crazy. Blah, 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 blah. Kids listen to that. Right. So whenever you tell your stories or they're listening to stories, make sure your stories may have, oh, it was horrible, but you know, we turned it around and we ended up having a great time. Oh God. And the story always ends on the up with, look at the great things we learned from this uh-huh. instead of, oh no, life is horrible. And those children can pick up on that, but they get that from their friends too. Oh, my life sucks. Oh, life is horrible. Oh, I'm sorry. You got to worry. And what are the two diseases of the 21st century? FOMO and what? FOMO and I don't know FOMO. YOLO. No, just FOMO. FOMO. And FOMO. You know what FOMO is? Yeah. What's FOMO? FOMO is what? Fear of missing out. And what's FOMO? I don't know. Fear of what others think. Oh, yeah. I, I definitely. I need <laughs> some of that. Needs one. to be in the DSM six. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Keep the stories on an upswing with your children. Tell them about the successes of their grandparents, how it went down, and then they came up. But every always end it with coming up, coming up, coming up. We turned it success, and children start to adopt that idea. If it's, oh, life is, oh, do you know this is going to happen? Oh, no, what's going to happen? The sky is going to fall in. Oh, no, no. Well, the sky may fall in, but, you know, if the sky falls in, look how close the planets are. And then we're going to grow a lot more growth and a lot more corn and wheat and everything. And and there's going to be gold. We're all going to be rich. If the sky falls in, oh, man, ain't it great if the sky falls in? Yeah. What? Yeah. Because you turn the falling sky into incredible metaphor of growth. We're going to talk about metaphor a lot more, too, when we talk about how we change the lenses of our history. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to The Full Cup. We'll see you next time. Okay. Thanks. See you later.